Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for joining me for this episode where I'm speaking with Gary Edwards, the founder and managing director of AAM Investment Group, a group that invests in agricultural investments in Australia. We talked to Gary about his experience spanning from the family farm they had outside of Sydney through to his scholarship he won judging animals in the US through to some of his insights in investments today in the agricultural area where he talks specifically about the need for scale and diversification as being key. We talk about the diversified AAM agriculture fund that aims to produce an ongoing income of around 6% and capital growth of around 6% to give investors approximately 12% per annum in the mid to long term. Please remember this recording and this podcast isn't designed to be specific advice or investment advice of any sort and people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Gary Edwards, founder and managing director of AAM Group Investments. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Gary, perhaps you could give us a little bit of insight into your background, who you are and what you do. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, I'm fortunate to be the managing director of AAM Investment Group these days. Uh, We manage a wide array of agricultural assets and and operating businesses. Um, I fortunately grew up in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales on a small beef cattle property. And like many people that find themselves in other careers these days, I had to move because the size of our asset wasn't large enough for me to stay inside uh, or develop a family business. So today, I essentially run a business that does what, uh, what my own business couldn't do, create scale and opportunity uh, for people to build careers and, and get investments into agriculture. Now, I noticed in looking at your background that you did an agriculture degree at Hawkesbury University and you got a scholarship and studied uh, in Illinois, am I correct? That's correct. What did that teach you or what did you learn or pick up? in in that learning? Well, the Illinois experience was uh, really quite unique. Um, Oddly enough, uh, how I managed to get the opportunity to go there is I I won a national livestock assessment competition with the Angus uh, Breed Society or Angus Cattle of Australia. And as part of that, they had this scholarship program studying animal science in, in Illinois. And going over there, part of uh, like people get recruited to sporting teams, well, I didn't quite realise I was being recruited to a, a professional livestock assessment team. And I, I joined the university team, travelled around 18 different states, and essentially uh, competed in contests, judging sheep, cattle, pigs, what have you, that they would present to us, and essentially winning, um, winning awards for the university that funded their their programs. So they're heavily supported by the corporate uh, corporate industry in North America and it's a very different thing to what we see here in Australia but it created a unique insight in getting exposure to so many different diverse agricultural businesses and people and, and sort of visiting the number of locations that we did over that time would be impossible to do in any other means but it was a certainly an eye-opening experience for a young person from uh, the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. What do the Americans do really well? Uh, 
in the agriculture space? Uh, look, they, they have a very clear plans about what it is that they're trying to do and why they're doing it. And they're more open to articulating that and sharing some of that, those ideas and, and collaborating with other producers or growers or supply chain participants. Um, and I guess they're just generally more open in, in discussing and very, very proud of what that, what that is. Um, still very much family business orientated, but you'll find that a larger number of the people working on those enterprises have formal tertiary qualifications. So people have done a diploma course or some form of degree and in many cases a master's course. So it's seen as a professional career, not just something that's a manual labour task, which is very, very different to traditionally how things have been looked at here. And I look in your history and I see that you founded something called Livestock Exchanges. Tell us about that. So Livestock Exchange um, was a software business that essentially developed with the introduction of the National Livestock Identification Scheme in Australia. So what that business did is developed the way to capture and transfer information to facilitate the movement of data and the implementation of that scheme as livestock traded at various facilities around the country. Now that was critical because what it meant is that the scheme, rather than being a government imposed program, developed into something that was very much a management tool and a productive tool and a supply chain efficiency because essentially we got to attach a number plate in the form of a microchip to every single animal in the country and track its, its value, track its movements throughout a supply chain. And for the farmers that meant that they could then get information back on the performance of their livestock rather than simply being, you know, there's 50 animals being sold today and this is the average of the 50, it created the platform of providing individual performance on the quality and the value of each of those individual animals. Enabling farmers to make better decisions and, and those that are invested in it and utilising that data, how to refine and, and uh, develop their production systems, uh, literally to be more profitable. And, and how did you exit that business or where, where, where <coughs> did it run its course or something? Uh, look, that, that business um, eventually was sold uh, to a, uh, a corporate partner, a J joint venture partner. Um, and, and interestingly, still today, we're involved in physically the exchange of livestock through a, uh, the regional livestock exchange network, uh, which is an investment that's owned by Palisade Investment Partners here in Sydney. And listeners uh, to the podcast will be Philip familiar with uh, Palisade. We've had uh, Roger Lloyd on the, on the podcast in the past. So AEM is fortunate to be the, the operator and manager of that portfolio on behalf of Palisade and, and we've done that since 2008 and mm -hmm. you, know, you know it's amazing what's happened that they are very modern um, efficient livestock facilities and you know, the first one of those started in 2008 and, and today that portfolio and, and incorporating all of that technology has grown to be sort of trading or, or facilitating the trade of about one and a half billion dollars of livestock a year. So that, so that, so so far I've gleaned. <coughs> boy, boy out of the hunter farm was too small. Learn, learn, knows what a good looking cow and pig looks like through the US, and maybe some conflicts of interest that happen when uh, corporates want to sponsor uh, judging events, um, and then use some technology in the agriculture space, and then you founded AAM Group. Tell us about AAM Group and what it does. So AAM Investment Group started back in 2007, um, essentially in conjunction with um, the, what we did in 
in helping uh, or facilitating the development of the regional livestock exchange portfolio with, uh, with Palisade. So back then we were simply looking uh, and providing a service as the operator or, or asset manager. And then it evolved into what we were doing our own investments in different agricultural opportunities. And then in 2016, it, it really changed in the sense that we uh, went in and uh, developed our own or, or, or developed our own AFSL, uh, which is a wholesale AFSL. Uh, to start creating individual uh, investment vehicles in unlisted portfolios to give investors exposure to agricultural opportunities that they um, would not normally get access to. And I guess that that's developed over that time to be what we're doing today and now with the diversified portfolio where we've got multiple assets in multiple geographic locations all inside uh, the one structure uh, producing income and capital returns. So why agriculture and how do you make money out of agriculture? That's a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> agriculture is something that, that I'm very passionate about and our rather extensive operational executive team is very passionate about in the sense that when you get the opportunity to do things at scale and you can strategically deploy capital and you know, in our sense, have the ability that you can create a geographically diverse portfolio and a commodity or supply chain diverse portfolio, you can create an investment structure that produces very stable yields. In fact, the diversified portfolio works on a quarterly dividend basis, but also giving exposure to the capital uplift obviously through the appreciation of land, but also through meaningful and material developments. So our target has always been to focus on a total return of, of roughly 12% on an annualised basis, where we want to see at least half of that come in the form of uh, annual distributions, and the remainder come through the development of the assets over a period of time. And how do you go about generating <coughs> that? sort of return of total circa 12%? Look, a lot of it, David, is driven through the scale and the diversity. Traditionally, I'm sure many of your listeners, listeners would know people that have got friends or family or, or somebody that they knew that owns a farming asset somewhere. And they probably haven't heard of any of the, any of the type of returns at the level that we've just spoken about. But the challenge is conventional agricultural investment is buying a single asset in a single geographic location, whether you're exposed to the singular climatic conditions of that situation, and more often than not, a single commodity supply chain. So what we've set about doing is breaking out all of those singulars that they don't exist. We have a multi-region focus that at any point in time, if it doesn't rain or it rains too much in one location, there's lots of other locations we have in our portfolio that are not experiencing that opportunity or challenge. By investing across the poultry sector, the, the sheep production, the beef cattle production, the cropping and even the timber uh, processing these days, it's created diversified income flows that's not linked to the commodity price or, or rise and fall or the, the export market changes or what have you of any individual commodity. That gives us a relatively unique position because 99% of all other agribusinesses and family businesses in Australia 
that have an agricultural enterprise don't have that. Um, it, it, the, the challenge is that singular focus and particularly the risk management around weather events in one geographic region. So let's talk a little bit about the diversified fund. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, maybe just give out, outline the scope of it, what it does, what it holds, what some of those assets are, and, and how it's going about its business. So the diversified agricultural fund uh, commenced in January 2020, and it was really an outcome that prior to that we'd created individual structures which were single commodity focused. Uh, and what we were finding is that our investors were investing in each of the different commodity or supply chain structures to create their own diversity. That kind of didn't make sense. There was, it was always going to be more efficient if we could create the one structure <coughs> from an investor perspective to invest in. And underneath that, we created different uh, pillars and, 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 if you like, supply chain investments that range currently from um, Western Queensland, where we run a, really, a, a very large organic beef and uh, sheep production program uh, in, a, in some quite iconic locations like the Terek Terek property, um, which have huge histories as far as Australia is concerned with sheep production you know, dating back for over 150 years. Uh, in fact, the Diversified Fund, I believe, is only the fourth or fifth owner in the entire history of that agricultural portfolio. That then links into uh, our Sunshine Farms portfolio at Forbes in Western New South Wales. So what we go from is having large-scale extensive production, moving to Forbes to intensive production, grain production, sheep production, and irrigated, uh, irrigation production. When we add to that uh, the other core animal protein, which is, uh, which is poultry production, in that the diversified fund has a material stake in our poultry portfolio in South Australia. Uh, so in South Australia, we are, or the fund is the largest grower of chickens for Inghams, uh, growing both free range and RSPCA uh, chickens for Inghams. And uniquely, that arrangement sees us partner with Inghams, but we're able to, for once, not take the commodity risk in regards to what's occurring and the, the changes in the price of chickens or changes in the price of grain. It's simply reliant on our ability and we get to deploy uh, or exercise our ability to efficiently grow animals in an environment where we've got a significant investment in uh, sustainable renewable energy. Um, we've diversified that business and taken what was once a waste product line that was an expense to one of the, the largest organic composted pelletized fertilizer businesses. And that, that uh, flooring of the chicken sheds, in, in some cases, it's finding its way all the way to Vietnam these days. So by looking at opportunities and creating that diversity, and, and sorry, I should add the final or the most recent pillar that's been added to that is uh, the sustainable softwood timber processing whereby we take, or the facilities that we own, take the thinnings or the heads of the trees that would normally be a byproduct of a forest growth, and through very precision uh, soaring equipment, we, ca we create landscaping products that many people would go and find if they went to their local hardware store on a weekend, or um, supplying to wholesalers for, for housing estates or what have you. So it's quite a diverse asset base, it's got very diverse income lines, 
but the focus on where we can create synergies on production. So uh, the, the composted fertilizer I mentioned, we're now actually taking back to Forbes and we're taking back to Blackall to create organic um, you know, fertilizer products to now grow more pastures and grow more crops. So it, it's quite a diverse but integrated system how they all complement each other. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying what's key is, you know, everyone talks about agriculture and I think most Australians are quite romantic about that concept of it, but investors are typically, you know, it's in the too hard basket because they understand of fire and if it's not on fire, you've got floods and if it's not on floods, you've got mice plagues or locust plagues. Um, and if that's not the case, you've got commodity prices and if commodity prices aren't there, you know, there's some sort of dust up internationally and they've shut down exports to who knows where and, and you've been hit with a single asset. So diversification seems to be very, very key. What is growing? And, and I guess I'm thinking about here, we've had conversations on this podcast with um, Kim Morrison in the uh, water area, we're at Kilter Rural, same in the water, and uh, a number of sort of other agricultural type of investments and, and investments with Merricks in the, in the debt piece of it. Overarching that seems to be a, uh, an overarching demand driver for Australian produce, both domestically and increasingly growingly into Southeast Asia, as Australia being the food bowl of high quality produce into that. Is that consistent with the thesis of the group? Very much so. If you look at um, the, the red meat proteins of beef production and lamb production, today and, and anyone going to their local supermarket and butcher shop will know what I'm talking about in regards to the price of those products to consume. That's driven off the fact that we now export somewhere between 70 to 75 percent of what we produce not because there's a need to, but simply because they're paying so much more for it. Uh, in fact, th they would take everything that we could possibly produce. And, and Brand Australia is a very, very powerful brand uh, linked to our biosecurity. And at the start of this, we spoke about you know, what happened in the development of software around the national traceability system. Well, it, that system today is core to underpinning our access uh, to those markets. And interestingly, not just the growth in Asia, but you've got countries like the United States. It's become the biggest importer of Australian lamb. Now, 15 to 20 years ago, they imported nothing. But this is the pursuit of the global market that has the wealth and affordability to get a high quality protein uh, that's driving that. Now, the same thing happens with our grain markets. The same thing happens with you know, various other components because we have a production environment that's fundamentally natural in the sense that we've got access to, to land and water. Um, it's renowned for its biosecurity. It's you know the, the quality of the food and the trust levels in what we're providing to those global markets is extremely high. We're very very fortunate that we oversupply our population demand. So so our production can essentially service somewhere around about 120 million people. So there's no possible way that if we took everything from Australia, we could go close to feeding the world. The, the, the challenge and the opportunity is how we produce products that meet the requirements of the 120 million people that can best pay for the quality that we're producing. And, and really that is the evolution that's occurring at the moment. 
And I suspect that's in the higher margin type of commodities and food business, if you'd like. Uh, certainly. Uh, they also take, like, there's markets that also take you know, a lot of our byproducts in the sense that for many, many years, um, anyone eating a McDonald's beef burger in Australia, that mince originated from Australia. Now, no one ever knew that as an American consumer, but that was because of the grass-fed natural and flavour natures that, that come with the product that we produced here. So it's interesting that there's now markets at every level. There's absolutely, as you say, the high-valued situation, but every product category that we produce right down to that mince product, if you like, now has an export market competing with the domestic demand to try and consu to consume it, which is absolutely underpinning the price and therefore the profitability that you can gain from these type of ventures these days, particularly where you've got scale, you've got diversity and you've got the ability to participate in supply chains. What have you learnt over the last couple of years having rolled out the diversified fund that if you had your time again you would have said we would have done this differently or we now understand this better so we're in a better position today than we did then? Uh, look, it, it, inevitably it's, it's how to explain to potential investors how these risks are managed. We take for granted because we are so entrenched in the detailed operational businesses that we run that manage all of those various risks out there as best as we possibly can. A lot of things that are pretty critical and, and not, not seen in many other investments. Um, we're dealing with a, a situation, as you mentioned, that's, that's quite emotive because we're, in, we're investing, you know, and the philosophy of our business is to create a sustainable legacy. So we're investing in these large land holdings where we're improving the productivity of them. Um, we've obviously got very large uh, animal production businesses that there's so much interest in actually what we do and, and a lot of the um, sustainability initiatives and a lot of the uh, regenerative farming techniques that we take for granted that we often forget to explain to people. So I, I get asked questions um, often after someone's invested to say, oh, do you do this? And, and it's a realisation moment because we are so intimately involved in what's going on inside these detailed operations that we take for granted that not everybody knows that. You forget to tell them. So that communication piece is important and, and uh, I take it there's some of the things that you've been improving on and, and getting better at. If we can talk a little bit about, and you touched on it, regenerative farming, you know, it's a big topic. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about protein replacement um, and regenerative farming uh, becoming more and more topical. We're seeing investment capital move <coughs> at a rate of pace. Tell me about how the group thinks about that uh, and how you're geared for it? Well, well, I guess from a company perspective, we don't mind if we're growing, um, growing plant proteins or we're growing animal proteins or we're growing fiber or, or any other grain product. What we focus it on is really producing a quality product that a consumer wants or, or needs rather than producing a commodity product that you're at the whims of and you become a price taker within the market. The reality is, whilst there's been enormous interest in plant proteins, and I hope we end up growing more uh, 
products or, or, or plants that meet that need. There's such a massive demand, as you touched on, around the world for accessing high quality animal proteins that they don't have access to, you know, particularly in parts of Asia. So there's so much scope uh, and we, we just, we struggle to meet the demand as a country. <clears throat> Excuse me, but the, 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 the challenge here is you can't lose sight of what the consumer market is telling you. Um, you know, who would have thought 10 years ago that we'd be discussing plant proteins and, and other things in the way that we are today? And I'm sure that'll be different in the future. Um, we're very, very fortunate in agriculture, though, that producing a food product, which is, you know, over the last two years in particular, become more renowned as being an essential resource, people are focused more on the quality of food that they are consuming uh, in any form. And I think, you know, the, the type of inquiries we get from even our animal production systems these days in regards to, you know, what we're doing with our animal welfare programs and how we change the designs of facilities to, to make them work with less direct contact with the livestock. Because there's a lot of animal behaviours that we've learnt over many, many years now that wherever you can make it that the um, the animals wanting to do or go to the location, A, less labour, B, it's faster and more effective to do, and B, you ultimately end up with a better product at the end of the day. So there's, there's so many different aspects of this um, that yes, you know, it'd be nice to think that one day the, the fields that we plant to wheat will be planting to some other soybean product or something that's being mm -hmm. consumed by a very different market segment. Um, the challenge is that as much as that demand has grown, you know, there's not the capacity for us to go on, you know, 10,000 acres and, and switch that crop. There's not the market to absorb that at the moment. So, it, like, I think you're exactly right. From my reading and understanding and discussion with people, you know, we have, you know, all sorts of views. Look at climate, and you look at you know, the, the cattle footprint, it's not so much the cattle footprint today and the demand for it, it's the extrapolation of China and the, the growing demand for beef and also the developing world as they continue to westernise and move from developing nations into much more developed nations and their percentage consumption of beef increases. Um, to me it would seem that Australia is going to become more of a high quality provider of that in a, in a global sense. I was, I was kind of interested in the farming practices. You are now, my, my wife's family have a cattle farm in northeast Victoria and it's interesting because a lot of people say, oh no, the farmers, you know, they're not into that. Well, my, my experience is, well, what they are very much into is looking after the land and the sustainability of that land. And if that means, you know, sowing and, and, and looking after the land and doing things that is gonna be for the long-term benefit of them, the family, the land, they will do that even if it means short term, it's not the absolute most productive. So I was interested in that, that side of things. How big is the fund at the moment, Gary? So the diversified fund is approximately $400 million in size. Um, we would expect that that will grow by another uh, three to $400 million this year uh, based on the opportunities that we've got uh, coming forward. And, and ideally, you know, Whilst we initially had targets of, of uh, 
you know, the fund size and what we're hoping to do over five to seven years, the reality is that it's growing so much faster than that. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the challenge here is for us to, to build out those supply chains uh, that we're now involved in, where we thought we had seven years to do that, well, it looks like we'll be doing a lot of that in three to four. So, you know, it's inevitably, uh, inevitably moves to being a resourcing uh, challenge as far as we do, do that opportunity. But as I mentioned, um, you know, we're very, very fortunate that a number of uh, young people and, and people that used to work on their family farm, rather than leaving the industry now, are coming and, and taking careers with us and actually moving back uh, to these locations, which allows us to grow this because the limitation on growth is, is really the people. And, and how do you work the mechanics of the farm because of the agricultural investment, the diversified portfolio in that, generally speaking, one of the things, you know, investors, you know, the, the, the single asset exposure as you talked about and the floods and the fires, et cetera, um, solved by diversification. How do you solve the issue, the other big issue of investors about, well, it's a very long-term investment that can be liquid. How do you manage that within the fund? Well, part, part, of the, part of the strategy around that is by creating scale. And, and the initial target of the fund was to exceed $800 million. Well, it's going to easily do that in a very short period of time. The relevance of $800 million is that if you look at the largest transactions that have occurred uh, within agricultural portfolios, most of those have been capped out at $500 million. Uh, in fact, the largest one was Webster's, which many of your um, investors may be aware of, which is approximately $850 million. But by creating a large diversified property portfolio and having a highly sustainable operating business, it creates maximum flexibility in the future that we can move the property assets more to a REIT structure and create the ability for capital inflows to come into that market. Uh, and I'm sure many of your, um, your listeners are aware of you know, obviously what REITs are doing right across the market. There's very few property REITs and certainly agricultural property REITs, I should say, available. But, <coughs> sorry. But the, uh, the, the reality of what we're focused on is showing uh, investors the consolidated returns, not just driven by capital appreciation, but by the underlying dividends you can get by investing in both the operating businesses and uh, in parallel to the, you know, the land assets and the property assets within the portfolio. Okay, and so from a practical standpoint, investors want to invest in the fund. Is it open at all times or are you capital called? And, and then how quickly can they get their money back if they want to liquidate? Well, the, the fund is essentially an illiquid fund. Uh, and, and the current term is seven years, which we're essentially two years into. Mm -hmm. The reality is though that we practically do, we open really at two times a year for an autumn and a spring capital raise. And, and what we try and do is package up those opportunities uh, so that when we're, we're doing those capital raises, we're acquiring multiple assets. And the re reality is with the capital inflows that come in at that point in time, if there are investors that need to get out or want to get out, we've been able to accommodate uh, those interests either by matching up investors or just dealing with that through the capital inflows. Um, 
essentially because the number of investors wanting to get in and, and certainly those investors that are continuing to expand their commitments is far greater than any, any interest we've had at this point in time of anyone looking to get out. And who are you typically buying these assets from? What's the profile generally? Look, conventionally they're family businesses, often multi-generation family businesses. Uh, if we talk about buying the stereotypical farm, our vendor will be um, people aged somewhere between 65 and 85 years of age. They've most likely not affected an efficient succession plan in that they've they've wanted to hold it, they've wanted to maintain the lifestyle, they've, they might have been expecting someone to come home from a professional career and bring their family back out and relocate. But they end up reaching an age where they need to decide, well, do I want to be out there working all of these hours every day or you know, do I need to look to move on? And that, if you like, uh, category of people is unfortunately so large because the average age of a farmer today exceeds 57 years of age. Now, there wouldn't be many industries around where the average age of the workforce is 57. But that's really reflective of you know, the, the capital challenges for, if you like, young people and, and uh, smaller operations to get involved because of the size and the value of these assets. Um, but it, you know, it's very fortunate, as I mentioned at the start of this, uh, this discussion, that's really the very same reason that 27 years ago I left my own family situation. Um, we've, we're very fortunate that we get to do something that's very core to many of our staff who have grown up in regional areas, who've, who have just now got the opportunity to not go back to a smaller family farming operation, but to work in a professional business that's utilising incredible technology and you know, tackling all of the challenges that you just couldn't do as an undercapitalised organisation. And Gary, what's the competition like for those assets? I, I, I think if I've got this right, the valuations of, of agricultural land is probably at all-time highs or near, near it. Commodity prices in most of the agriculture sectors seem to be at all-time prices. I sort of keep in touch with this a little bit by rural clients and uh, some of the mates I had at boarding school. Um, who, what's the competition like and who are you competing with? I keep hearing about Canadian pension funds and large corporates in the space. What's your experience? Well, you've got literally every demographic um, of investor because there's, there's really no barriers to entry to investing in this. The, the, the natural way, if, if we look at the segments that our business participates in, we really only participate in the market where assets are above $10 million. And the reason for that being the case is that under $10 million, you find a lot of individual investors or family operations will operate in that, that segment where there tends to be more of a lifestyle influence. They're doing it because they want to buy the neighbouring block or it's you know, within three hours of a major metropolitan location or what have you. At the other end, we have, as you, you mentioned, many of the larger corporations and particularly the offshore funds, but more often than not, they're looking for individual assets over $100 million. Mm -hmm. So there's a mid-market range there that is really the sweet spot for what AAM is seeking to do, where we're trying to, attempting to find assets that are above what is the lifestyle influence market 
but below the market that uh, is valued based on the larger corporate tickets in that they tend to pay more on a productive basis for the, the extremely large assets. So in that space that AAM is operating, we're essentially competing against large wealthy families that are wanting to expand, um, and there's quite a number of those uh, within the market. We're also starting to see more interest generally in, in people investing uh, in this segment. The, the relative point though is that many of the investors that want to come into this market don't want to have the operational exposure because they don't have the skills within their team or um, a relationship with a manager to take on uh, these large assets and operations. And that tends to be the point of difference because we are consolidating that and dealing with both aspects where we find a bit of a point of difference in the niche within the market. So many times we can walk in and take over both the land and the entire livestock situation in situ where many of our, if you like, competitors or, or really contemporaries uh, are looking to simply invest in the land and then get some other counterparty to, uh, to lease those or, or undertake the operations on those assets. Now Gary, if you were given a genie and you were granted a wish and, and you know, you, one asset presented itself <coughs> to you in the next week or so um, to be able to add to the portfolio right now given your outlook, what would that asset look and feel like? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, that would be very hard for me to pick because we're constantly challenged by the various different regions we're looking at. So for instance, at the moment, there's about 14 different assets that we're assessing at the moment to pick which is the one. They've all got various different uh, attributes. But really what we're looking for is the asset that has, that's undeveloped in nature. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for assets that we can improve the water sustainability or water security on and something that will, would be um, complementary in the sense that we can run not one operation but multiple operations. So you can get some scale out of it. We need, we need to get some scale but we need to have some alternate uses. So. What we're talking about there is the holy grail of the mythical thing that essentially doesn't exist. But in amongst uh, the diversity of those 13 or 14 opportunities, there's a consolidation of how we piece that together, unfortunately, rarely with one, but with probably two or three to create that scale and that next opportunity to bring in another region to our portfolio that, that suits our supply chain. Let me ask maybe a flip side of this or counter that. What are the things that you're trying to avoid actively? Overcapitalized assets. Mm -hmm. um, look, there are, there are many assets that uh, simply trade on emotion, which unfortunately uh, doesn't work for us from an investment perspective. We tend to avoid the properties that have the fantastic homesteads and elements like that, which are great lifestyle elements, but they don't fit our investment case uh, at all. Nice big white fence around Nice big white fence around the Very pretty, and, and I'm sure uh, whilst we all love to have that at home, unfortunately that doesn't produce a return very often. Uh, but we're, we're also trying to, to avoid uh, assets that have been, well, 
essentially used and abused. Um, now there's not many of those out there, but the, the challenge is in some locations, there simply isn't the water resource to meet our needs. And water, water and water are the three greatest risk managements that we need to do in anything to do with agriculture. So we desperately avoid locations where we believe that we can't create the water security that we need to, to, to create the right risk adjusted return. So one of the things I've been hearing in the agri space that surprised me, and, and I, was, I was always, I recently did a trip with some mates from school. We were lucky to be locked out of COVID Sydney lockdown. Um, and, and we drove from Tamworth up to Cairns and then we went on a motorbike tour from Cairns across to Darwin. And you know, th these were both sort of uh, rural people and agriculture based and they were giving me the run through as we went past every sort of farm and had to tell me all about it. And, and, and I, was, I was asking, well, where, where have all these sheep farm gone? Gone in the days where, you know, from Sydney we used to drive down to Wagga and you go down past Goulburn and Yass. And, and, it, and it seemed to me that on that drive, everyone who was, if you could run cattle, you'd run cattle because they seemed to be very high margin. And that you were moving towards either cotton or some other nuts or similar on whether it was macadamia or other on top of that some high margin crop on top of that. What, what's going on, if anything, in the sheep area? Well, it's interesting. That's actually one of the major growth areas within our business. Uh, in fact, we've just done a large scale conversion of taking uh, some land areas that for the last 20 years have been run exclusively as cattle only back to sheep production. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that today we can construct very large exclusion fences, mm -hmm. which allows us to manage the issue of wild dogs and other components that were uh, conventionally limitations within that. And interestingly, and, and where I'm talking about here is areas of Western Queensland. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that we've now, uh, I think, completed 219 kilometres of exclusion fencing around this large aggregation. We will have next year 75,000 sheep back in this particular area. And the last time any of this land saw sheep is well over two decades ago. Now, what we're talking about here is vast uh, grazing lands that one of the unique aspects you get by um, introducing sheep back th to this area is they graze quite differently to cattle relative to the pasture species. Now, we have areas just like you're describing where they're, they're more suited to cattle production because of the land type and the soil type. The barrier to doing this has been the investment in the infrastructure, so the fencing. And today, the margins that's available, in fact, the, the location in Western Queensland, which is our Australian livestock company assets, Today, off that very same land area, we can produce a 50% higher gross margin off sheep production than what was conventionally produced off cattle. But it's a change of sheep. We're not growing uh, merino wool sheep in that location. What we're growing is uh, a breed of sheep that's used for prime lamb production. They're highly fertile. In actual fact, they're so fertile, fertile that you can actually get them to produce three sets of offspring in two years. 
So it's not all spring or spring all year round. It's not all spring all year round. <laughs> so, so there are differences in areas. And I think for many years, people focused on sheep production really as wool production. Mm -hmm. um, there's just, there's been a, a significant transition now that there's um, a greater volume of prime lamb production. And we all know what lamb cutlets cost in the butcher shop and what have you. But at the same time, it's interesting about the recovery that is occurring within the sheep and the wool industry based off people seeing the benefits of wool as a natural fibre. Mm -hmm. And I don't dismiss the opportunity and the fact that you might see sheep returning to some of these regions based off consumers valuing that natural fibre far more than synthetic fibres into the future. But at the end of the day, all of these production areas is how you utilise the resource. The greatest challenge of what's driven the conversion to cattle is that sheep often require more labour than cattle production. And as I mentioned earlier, with the ageing demographic of farmers, as they've had less labour available, they've tended to change their enterprises to cattle because they're less labour intensive. Often they can hire contract service providers for, for short periods of time to muster their animals and process their animals. And I guess they've satisfied themselves in running a less intense, maybe slightly more conservative operation, taking advantage at the moment of you know, the very high beef prices. So there's many, many influences or many, many things that influence what type of operations people run. I think we're about to re-enter an era though where you see that the more investment that's going back into agriculture, it's gonna create the opportunity to bring back employment and facilitate some technology adoption that means that less labour is required to achieve the outcome. So it'll be interesting to do the same trip that you've just done in five to 10 years time and see how much of that has changed over that period. And Gary, how are you dealing uh, with the higher prices of assets at the moment? And how are you thinking about that? How do you make sure you're not overpaying? Oh, look, there's, there's particular regions that we simply are, are, are not looking at acquiring assets in at the moment because for our business, they're overpriced. Uh, we simply can't get the type of returns and, and therefore we need to look at other different supply chains and, and often very different geographic regions. What, ex what are some examples of those sort of regions? Oh, certainly North Queensland and, mm -hmm. and Queensland as a whole, uh, but uh, North and Central Queensland, we've seen dramatic changes in price over the last two years uh, linked to you know, the changes in the beef price and, and mm -hmm. what have you there. Um, we don't see that there's the capital growth potential uh, in the short term, that's what's been there in the past. But there's also areas uh, really linked to water security. So, so what you're seeing is that the areas where there's been investment and improvements in water security, not only has the underlying value of the water licenses improved, but the value of that land is starting to move and will dramatically move over the next 10 to 15 years in our opinion. Yeah, terrific. Well, Gary, thank you very much. It's been uh, really enlightening. I really enjoyed chatting to you and I can see and feel your passion for the space. Uh, before we leave, I'm more than happy to leave you with the last say or ask you if there's anything I should have asked you, but I'll leave you with the last say. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me here today. Look, 
I just encourage people to open their mind and look at it. Um, this is an asset class that probably has been misrepresented in the past. It's got all the fundamental security aspects of investing in property that you'd see in an urban area. Uh, very rarely do property prices ever decline. In fact, we're really dealing with the one property segment within this, uh, within the entire market that is the most underinvested uh, in all of Australia, uh, let alone how our property prices compare with rest of the rest of the world. People or investors have traditionally looked at the challenges uh, that are involved in operating these assets and it certainly is difficult if you're trying to operate your own or, or one situation. What, what really needs to be understood here is as we've proven there are material um, reliable distributions that can be received and are regularly received providing you take an approach that you'd probably take to any other part of your investment portfolio, which is the diversity of allocation, whether you're talking about listed shares or what have you. So the, the challenge when I talk to potential investors around this is to set aside all the stereotypes and all the things you think you know about this and go and look at it from a fresh approach. Look at the fact that it is fundamentally underpinned by these land assets that are materially undervalued from a global perspective, which is why all of this foreign money continues and will continue to come in here. But, but look at it that there's a unique opportunity to be part of feeding a portion of the world. We're not going to feed the entire world. But the reliance and the uncorrelated nature of these investments, basically to any other asset class, essentially stands them alone. What I do hope is that there's more people get involved and, and more companies get involved in encouraging people to invest because this is the greatest underinvested market segment that sits there um, within the investment market, in our opinion, uh, in the country. Great way to finish it. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.